1: So a lot of 2020 has as many people have observed felt like a movie although I think now, now it feels a little bit more like a student film like you know some second year student at USC. Uh, film school. This is what he came up with. Uh, doesn't really feel like a fully realized movie that you could, you know, distribute to theaters anymore. Uh, all right. I mean, it's just not coherent enough. Anyway, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, related subjects right now. We are fortunate to have back with us a guest that we're always excited to have. Uh, John Harris is the co-founder of Politico and the author of *The Survivor: Bill Clinton in the White House*. He writes the he writes *Altitude*, a weekly column for Politico. And, you know, I've been thinking today, this is sort of a meta question to set up, John. Um, I've been thinking today about... uh, uh, an essay from about 1980 by George W. S. Trow. It was called "In the Context of No Context." It was published in, in book form. In the context of no context, uh, it was actually about how we were becoming more ahistorical because of television, which was dividing us up and and interfering with social coherence. And of course, we know that's all true. But I think now it feels as though we've been pulled like a piece of gum off the sole of history's shoe and we're just floating in this space that's impossible to assess because it doesn't correspond to anything we know. we have got a president mismanaging a pandemic and then getting the disease a month before election day, a president who, who owes $420 million to God knows who, and who empowers and endorses extremist groups, a Senate trying to ram a Supreme Court nominee through 30 days before the election, as some of its members of the Senate get the pandemic disease. And to top it all off, last night, the sick president stands unmasked on the balcony like Juan Perón. And it almost feels like the paradigm of even having somebody really smart and experienced like you, John Harris, having you come on the show and analyze this is almost increasingly defeated by the fact pattern. I mean, are you finding, this is the meta question, are you finding that what you know about the history and behavior of major public and political institutions is becoming less useful to you as this scenario changes into something that doesn't correspond to points of of reference?
2: Uh, Yes, that's a, a, a big Met a question that I thought about a lot, Colin. uh, But it's got a short answer. Yes, you Uh, call it a a cosmic joke. Times and uh, uh, so our frames of reference uh, about uh, what happens normally, uh, our our belief that uh, um, uh, well, this could never happen, Mm -hmm. or here's what happens when when such and such takes place. It's all been shredded uh, over and over again. uh, Things that we would think could never happen. Have happened. Uh, they now seem to be happening with uh, increasingly uh, increasing velocity, and uh, um, there's a, a tragic element to it. Uh, but it's infused with uh, with slapstick. Uh, uh, I think that's your point about the uh, the film. So I agree. We've got we've got something something stuck on our shoe, Colin. I'm not sure it's gum.
1: Right. I mean, so much of analysis is sort of if the if A then B. But if A, then B is usually kind of predicated on our prior understanding you know, of what's happened in the past. We can detect patterns in public life and say, well, we know that typically if A happens, then B will be the probable result. But I feel like even that simple a paradigm seems a little defeated at the moment.
2: Well, the mind can go in one of two directions. It can uh, go in a kind of a normalizing direction. Uh, trying to make sense of this uh, based on uh, rational understanding of what we think is happening, or it can go as my <laughs> mind sometimes does in some moods in kind of a mystical direction. It's almost as if the cosmos is is uh, toying with us, uh, and it's uh, um, it's making a mockery of, of that context that you mentioned—the the way things uh, things are. That you know, it turns out the the gods have a sense of humor. I thought that uh, as uh, I pondered. Uh, Under Trump's illness. Um, uh, You can't go very far as a journalist uh, with mystical explanations, so let's get down to to more secular ones. Um, We are in an age where trust in institutions uh, has been uh, eroding. Um, That long precedes President Trump. Um, What Trump uh, represents is uh, the kind of final crumbling of a lot of precedents and uh, norms and values that used to infuse institutions, Uh, politics, uh, the news media, uh, lots of other institutions and and kind of this is what happens when you you shred the institutions that um, uh, historically have been the rule book. Um, uh, you know, there's was a certain understanding about uh, uh, the amount of information the media uh, was entitled to have uh, from a president uh, when he was facing health problems. like, well, you you can shred that. Um, there you know, and, and we could talk all day about, different examples of expectations and norms, precedents that have been shredded in the the Trump years connecting all of them is the idea that a lot of Americans just don't have trust in the institutions that, that used to enforce those norms.
1: So let's try and if the a, and then B uh, out here in the non meta real world. So typically based on, I think everything that we know, if we've been spending a lot of our lives looking at politics If you could imagine, pre-imagine a situation where the president, who was kind of in trouble or maybe a lot of trouble election-wise for having mismanaged a pandemic, got the disease, it would—so if that's A, B, a logical B would be that he would use that moment— assuming he recovered from the disease, to speak to a bunch of people who currently reject him, who feel as though he hasn't taken the pandemic seriously enough. Uh, they may have lost relatives or friends and, from from the pandemic and, and feel as though his cavalier attitude and dismissive rhetoric is part of the problem. So he could use that moment to try to expand his base and talk in a much more humbled, in sympathetic tone about this and maybe even have a sort of an Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, Scrooge on Christmas day revelation, but we're just, that's not the B we're getting here, is it?
2: Well, look, uh, Colin, that's your fantasy. It's never been (laughs) Trump's uh, fantasy. And, uh, uh, you know, you can play that game at almost uh, any point in the plot line. Uh, A lot of people thought that might be uh, uh, that incarnation of Trump, more modest, uh, more open uh, to persuading people who who disagree with him, uh, thought that would take place after election or at the inaugural um, uh, or at different points along the way. Um, It seems to me he could have tried something like that um, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic and said, hey, look, the old way I've been practicing my politics is no longer uh, longer relevant to our, our new circumstances. Uh, And he could have done it. uh, It would have been late in the day. Here we are in October, just a uh, a month away from the election, a little less than that. Uh, He could have done that with this most recent illness. But, uh, uh, you know, at some point you've got to surrender that fantasy. Uh, Trump uh, believes in uh, the brand of politics that's taken him this far. uh, And and he believes in the the, the personal style that's taken him this far in life. Um, You know, to state the obvious, it's a uh, it's a politics of mobilization, getting people who share his grievances or identify with him personally uh, uh, kind of riled up and, uh, and further committed to this notion of, of uh, Trump as an invincible figure and almost kind of supernatural force as a leader. Uh, it's a politics of mobilization. It's not a politics of persuasion. Like, look, hey, I know you have some misgivings about me, but let me tell you why I'm right and see if I can uh, kind of bring you into the fold. Um, uh, Bill Clinton practiced politics of persuasion. Um, sometimes the liberals resented it. They wanted a more um, uh, a kind of a fiercer, bolder brand of politics. Uh, for the past 20 years, uh, our politics has had more mobilization. George W. Bush did that. Uh, Trump does that. Uh, Barack Obama was uh, kind of a, a composite of the two. I think under other circumstances, he might have been a, tried to be a persuasive politician maybe that just doesn't work in our modern politics we're all about uh, we're all about mobilizing people around their grievances
1: you know you mentioned clinton i've been thinking a lot about him lately and also thinking very specifically about the famous moment in his debate with 41 where he uh, Bush 41 was sort of unable to respond to a woman asking a question and Clinton said in a way that elicited chuckles from some people but I think was very effective. He said I feel your pain and and who knows because he was a man of many masks uh, mm-hmm. who knows whether he felt her pain but he understood at that moment that that was the human response. That was the thing that needed to be said and that that was the thing that would separate him in a significant matter from the reserve uh, and patrician, uh, well, reserve is really the perfect word, uh, uh, yeah. of George Bush 41. And, you know, it just kind of, that doesn't seem to be anywhere, as you're saying, in Trump's arsenal. It's a it's a fantasy to suppose that it, it could exist anywhere there. But isn't it a, just a gigantic political mistake not to somehow or other humanize this moment?
2: You know, I've thought about it so often, Colin, uh, in that, uh, um, you know, I wrote a column, uh, I guess, a year or so ago, like, what if Trump weren't nuts? It was kind of a provocative headline.
1: I remember that. that What if he
2: was the uh, 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 kind of a practice, a more rational brand of politics, uh, uh, projected uh, that kind of empathy or curiosity uh, that you're describing and that Bill Clinton was good at? What if he recalibrated? Um, You know, I think, to be honest, uh, um, he would be in formidable position. He could have uh, really been um, a decisive president. He clearly was right um, it, it, about the mood of the country or significant portion of the country on some big issues, trade, uh, more confrontational stance uh, toward China. Though that's really now mainstream thinking in both parties in a way that it wasn't. Um, uh, and, and so you could envision a different uh Kind of presidency and a different role in history for president trump but in order to do so you would have to also envision a completely different character and with a completely different character there, there probably wouldn't have been a trump presidency in the first place um, you can play this game endlessly what if nixon had all his mastery of politics and uh, and the global stage but he didn't have this paranoid streak um, uh, imagine that like well what if he probably wouldn't have been president without that kind of inner darker side to his character. What if Bill Clinton had been everything he was, but you could separate the uh, uh, the sexual indiscretion? Uh, well, that f- itself flowed from a, a kind of a neediness uh, and a drive to please um, and, a, and an instinct to always put himself uh, at the center of uh, things. That Without that, uh, he probably would never have been president in the, in the first place. So it's yeah, a fun I mean, parlor game to play these what ifs.
1: Right. Uh, and, and we'll almost invariably, almost invariably, John, I think a, a leader's virtues are also his vices. Um, that, you know, and, and you just simply have to hope. I mean, in the case of Obama, he also had a kind of reserve and a kind of no drama quality, which was very effective and really helped him a lot, except at times where maybe he needed to connect in a little bit more emotional or human way. So everybody's, everybody's got that, you know. Um, I, I know that one thing that you're, struggling with right now and struggling with it in in, in print, uh, so to speak, uh, is the question of how how do we react to this particular moment, to the fairly serious, we don't know how serious because we can't get any really straight information, but fairly serious illness of a president, uh, which seems to be conducted like everything else with a tremendous amount of theatricality uh, and and not a lot of substantive information. But there's, you know, Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high, which is a great slogan and it's great advice it's it's harder it work yeah. maybe over
2: the long term it works not every uh, doesn't work in every individual you,
1: individual you were writing it feels hard to go high or at least all the way high here w- when dealing with trump and his illness
2: well i don't i think the uh, original headline of that column you referenced uh colin was called is it okay to laugh at trump's coronavirus um uh, and then some colleagues in the newsroom thought that sounded a little insensitive. So we went to some other slightly more opaque uh, headline. Um, but the question is, you know, it was a real one. Uh, you know, I heard from tons of people. I wasn't up when the news first broke at around 1 a.m. Eastern. But by the time I was up around 630, of course, my phone was exploding with uh, with texts and emails. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, to put it bluntly, uh, were kind of, um, uh, kind of buzzing on the news they did think there was something funny about it or at a minimum, they thought there was a kind of a karmic uh, justice to it. Of course, a lot of people didn't believe it. What's the catch? I wonder if this is, uh, uh this is really happening. So is it okay to laugh? I don't think, um uh, first off, we're not that far gone as individuals that we should be laughing at anybody's uh, illness or, um, uh, or, or gloating about it. Um, that's different, though, than saying, uh, um, than acknowledging the simple truth, which is President Trump, through his own behavior, did invite um, some of this. He put himself at higher risk. Uh, and uh, I don't think we have to treat it with a sort of grave uh, solemnity, which we might if it was, uh, um, if the circumstances were different. Um, um, you know, President Trump, by his own behavior, hasn't really invited. That degree of um, um, of sympathy or or, or even empathy, uh, if he doesn't extend it, he's not likely to get it back from a lot of people. So, um, you know, I think uh, one of the most notorious uh, quotes ever was Malcolm X uh, talking about the JFK assassination. He said it was the a, a case of chickens coming, coming home, home, to home to roost. Uh, that is, America was with its culture of violence. Uh, this was the natural extension of that. That violence would take. Uh, its own leader. And then I think uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, uh, President Obama's former uh, 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 pastor, used it in, in what a lot of people thought was a really outrageous way. I, I guess I similarly thought it was outrageous after 9-11, the chickens coming home to roost. Um, uh, but I think in both cases, they meant, look, you know, there's a kind of a cosmic justice uh, that works uh, in the world. And uh, in this case, to me, it's not even a hard one to say that uh, uh, this is uh, chickens coming home to roost uh, for President Trump, both in the, in the kind of literal sense, that is, he uh, engaged in high-risk behavior, and, and so it's not unexpected that he might get this, and I think in the more mystical sense, uh, which is you know, somebody that mocks other people for wearing masks, that mocked Hillary Clinton when she got sick in the 2016 campaign. Um, there is a little bit of karmic justice that, uh, mm-hmm. when somebody who does that himself is laid low, uh, it's not a question of gloating uh, to say the chickens are coming home to, ro- to roost. It, it's just a, I, I think, a, a fair observation.
1: All right, we're talking to John Harris, co-founder of Politico. Uh, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back with a little bit more of John. Justice, every cop is a criminal. You're listening to The Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, we're talking to John Harris, the co-founder of Politico, the author of The Survivor, Bill Clinton in the White House. He writes the uh, he writes Altitude. I don't know why I keep wanting to call it The Altitude. Uh, he writes Altitude, a weekly column for Politico. So... Just to sort of build on this, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, partly, John, because um, a a woman who was a kind of an activist uh, in a small town in Connecticut recently died. She'd been on our show. She got in a lot of trouble because uh, in a sort of Kaepernickian fashion, she at town board meetings would kneel uh, and uh, during the Pledge of Allegiance, I think. uh, And uh, she had she got death threats. She got men writing to her to threaten her with sexual violence uh, and then punctuating that with maga you know at the end and and there was this bitter irony of the fact that you know their big complaint with her was the kind of disruption of patriotic decorum and then they're threatening her life and threatening her with rape but one of the things that I, i think has changed is you pay a very, very high price these days, whether you're a journalist, a whistleblower, uh, a, a citizen with a conscience. If you go against whatever the Trump tide is, I, I feel like that price is higher than it's been in my lifetime.
2: There's been, um, a lot of, uh, really ugly behavior in American life. Um, in recent years, I agree with that. Um, um, I, I, I think that one side is uh, more responsible for that ugliness, but I don't think they're uniformly responsible. Um, um, threatening somebody uh, is, uh, is that the woman you mentioned, uh, who's been the guest on your show uh, in that fashion for expressing her views. No reason to mince words. That is un-American uh, that runs counter uh, to American tradition. And, um, um, you know, her, her uh, kneeling uh, at least as I imagine it uh, and as I observe it in other people like Colin Kaepernick, it, it's not a way of showing disrespect for America, it's a way of uh, showing contempt for the gap between American ideals and American practice and, and so in, in that sense it's an expression of patriotism, not a defiance of patriotism
1: The um I, I you know I I agree first of all that there is some blame to lay on both sides for the current state of polarization and I,
2: and I don't mean to get into both sideisms, no. but it's uh, um because uh, that's not how I feel but um um
1: But I also feel so I I was I've been listening lately to this uh, terrific BBC podcast. that's about the bombing of the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. Um, uh, It's called something like two, two, two minutes past nine is what it's called. So one of the things they sort of document here is the way that. That kind of extremism that was expressed in the form of Timothy McVeigh uh, or or some of the right wing extremist groups that preceded him is is now being manifested, you know, not only in a president who seems unable to denounce, say, the Proud Boys or the the white supremacist at Charlottesville, um, but, you know, I mean, you can even see it a little bit in the kind of go- anti-government rhetoric of people resisting COVID uh, protections that that there's a way in which, you know, it's it seems to be bleeding, not maybe into the mainstream exactly, but with a president who won't draw a line anywhere. It does seem as though that kind of attitude has more room to grow and flourish.
2: Certainly more visible, Colin, I agree with you on that. Um, I don't uh, necessarily agree that it's flourishing, I certainly hope not. My own view is that brand of politics uh, represents kind of the last spasms of a dying old order. Um, The nationalist movements, whether in the United States uh, as personified by Trump or in European countries where we've seen kind of a similar brand of politics, uh, as I observe it, it, it uh, the appeal is primarily to an uh, older, whiter, and more culturally traditional and, and therefore culturally uh, 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 threatened um, or, or people that feel threatened and, in, and vulnerable in some way. So these movements, older, whiter, more traditional, are taking place in an electorate that's becoming younger, more diverse, uh, more cosmopolitan, uh, and culturally tolerant uh um and and so i don't uh, see them as ascendant i actually see them as as declining and some of the most uh, flamboyant uh, behavior is uh um i think is a symptom of that decline
1: so that sounds like maybe you're a little bit hopeful for uh, the post trump future because i mean i think that's an i know it's a question you've written about and it's a question You know, during the debate last week, at least a lot of us could say, well, that's not a debate. That's not the way that's supposed to be. So our norms weren't so completely degraded and forgotten that we couldn't recognize something really abnormal. But it's an interesting question. Assuming Biden uh, is victorious, you know, what parts of our our national public life are repairable and which ones aren't?
2: That is a a great question. Um, The... Uh, the great historian, uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who, who for all I know, was uh, on your show. He died, I think, in 2007. he would certainly be familiar to many of your listeners. Uh, He said, the great strength of democracy is its capacity for self-correction. And um, uh, we should all hope that's true, and I I think it is true. Um, The question of norms and and how do you restore them once shattered is a really good one. You and I could recognize that debate as, as not normal as as, a, as an embarrassment. Um, what about my children? Uh, they're uh, they're young adults, uh, and uh, I don't think they have a, a frame of reference uh, f- uh, to um, to earlier debates. That uh, they don't uh, um, remember the Reagan era or the Clinton era debates, or even the Bush Obama era debates. That's their normal. Uh, Trump era politics is is uh, their normal. They recognize it as a as in some way distorted and defective, that's not what they wish for their country. Uh, But um, they don't have uh, um,
1: um,
2: the same sense that you or I have, which is, wait a minute, that just doesn't happen. Uh, They know it does happen.
1: Yeah, so with the, we only got a couple of minutes left, but I would assume that your uh, young adult children and a lot of young adult children, I mean, when you look at the tremendous response in 2016 to Bernie Sanders, well, what was that all about? That was a, about a lot of young people suddenly going, wow, hold on, here is somebody with a message, and the content of it is discernible, and he seems to really mean it, uh, and, and he's articulating a vision of what government can do that's that I'm not really hearing anywhere else, I'm getting really excited. To me, that generation of young adults, maybe because they don't have our jaded presuppositions, may be able to embrace better ideals than, than we post-Trump. Um,
2: I think that's right. There's certainly an impatience uh, and there's certainly an expanded sense of uh, what's possible. I do think the um, uh, that's one thing uh, Trump has done in, in one direction. Um, voices like Bernie Sanders uh, are... Um, uh, are, are doing in a different direction. They've broadened the lines of politics and, and of what's uh, um, sort of what's possible. Um, you know, if we were to go back uh, 20 years ago, he'd say, well, wait a minute, somebody who's a self-described socialist, that person has no, um, uh, no role in presidential politics. You, that, that, that's, nothing's going to happen with that. Um, and we wouldn't have been able to foresee uh, the impact uh, that not just uh, Bernie Sanders has, uh, Elizabeth Warren has, uh, and other candidates have in sort of moving beyond the, the Clinton era politics of the 90s, or even the Barack Obama politics of, uh, um, uh, you know, just ended a half decade ago, uh, um, the, 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 the boundaries change, and, and they're constantly changing. That's why politics is interesting to cover.
1: <laughs> well, on that note, yes, interesting. Interesting is, uh, yes, and it, you're absolutely right, John Harris. We've discovered that a lot of things are possible that we didn't think were possible. Some of those things have been horrific, but some of those things— but they're, not not, they're, they're not all bad. They're not all bad. No, there's a pl- some of them are, are really quite hopeful. Uh, John Harris is co-founder of Politico and the author of The Survivor, Bill Clinton, in the White House. He writes, Altitude, a weekly column for Politico. Thank you for spending time with us today.
2: Thanks, Colin. I hope we can do it again soon.
1: Oh, yeah. Fence of our country. It's time at the top. Could be coming to an Hey, we're back. I hope you did pledge. And if you didn't pledge just now, you should listen to this segment because it's going to be really good. But then at the end of that, you should definitely pledge. And uh, There'll be somebody coming on for the last five minutes of this hour to get you to do that. Meanwhile, I've got to thank Kat Pastor. She's uh, in the studio making it possible for me to work remotely and also making it possible for Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show and producer of this particular episode, uh, also to work remotely. Uh, We've got some uh, other exciting shows coming up later this week, but my thoughts aren't well enough organized to talk about them right now. And anyway, uh, I want to talk to Peter Walker, who leads the White House COVID Tracker, a crowdsourced database for the White House COVID outbreak and head of growth at Public Relay. Uh, Peter Walker, thanks for
0: joining us. Hey, Colin, good to be here.
1: So maybe just begin with, like, I think some people, well, first of all, explain what the what the tracker is. E- explain what it is you're doing.
0: Sure thing. So uh, Benji Renton, uh, Dr. Jesse O'Shea, and I uh, put together this tracker to keep sort of a handle on all of the public reporting that's going on around who has been involved in this White House outbreak. So we're tracking about 290 contacts now from five or six different events that the president attended over the last week or so. Um, And, you know, the whole goal here is just to provide something in the way of transparency about who is involved in these events and the way that this virus is spreading since uh, the administration seems reluctant to do so.
1: I should say uh, to tell you that we're actually supposedly working on a full episode of our show about data visualization, although I'm a little unclear still about how we're going to do that on the radio. But you're using that (laughs) for that for this. and, And it seems um, well, for some people might say, "Well, why why are you guys doing this?" I mean, isn't there like a CDC or isn't there somebody who's supposed to be doing this for the American public? I, I know the the answer to this question, but you should give it too.
0: Absolutely, we know the same answer. It's yes, um, and we wish we didn't need to do it. Um, you know, I'll state that. Of course, we're not a formal contact tracing operation. We're we're aggregating publicly available information. But even so, it it just illustrates the lack of uh, caution and sort of care that some of the senior leadership has taken here. You know, there are reports that some people in the White House staffers and certainly service workers didn't find out about the exposure until three days afterwards in an email. Um, You know, that kind of thing at a workplace these days would be frowned upon at the White House. That's it's pretty, pretty crazy
1: right there's sort of an upstairs downstairs element to this and i noticed that you were linking to a piece in the atlantic about this i mean we tend to know about and focus on some of the bold faced names uh that might show up at a rose garden party but there's like 400 people uh who work at the white house a lot of them are valets and pastry chefs and stuff like that and you know we don't know their names they have families and they're right in the line of fire here
0: absolutely and you know, they're, they're not going to be taken uh, in a helicopter to Walter Reed anytime soon. So there's, there is this sort of an upstairs-downstairs element to this. Um, and over and above the fact that there's a lot of people here that are personally at risk, um, it's, <laughs> you know, this is a, a matter of, of pretty great national interest at the moment. So the idea that certain of these contacts that have uh, very clearly been in close contact with people that have tested positive, You know they get one negative test and then they go back out of quarantine kind of flouting those cdc guidelines um and just yesterday we had an example of the problems with that um as press secretary mackinney tested positive after three i believe negative tests the preceding days so people are not out of the woods yet even if they you know attended that event at the rose garden for the um for the supreme court nomination
1: Right. I want to talk about several aspects of what you just said here, but let's just, let's just talk for a second about this. Are you, are you pretty comfortable with the idea that the Rose garden event and maybe the indoors reception that was attached to the uh, just judge Barrett uh, Rose garden event is the kind of the originating uh, event for this cluster? Well, it's
0: a- it's an interesting question. I think certainly the Rose Garden events, based on the information we have now, um, had the most uh, people that have tested positive prior to, or excuse me, following that event uh, in presence. So there's 10 positive cases that we tracked to that event. Now, whether or not those cases originated at that event is, is almost impossible to say. Certainly there are some positives in the president's calendar that happened preceding that. But it does seem it's certainly the biggest event with the most um, sort of personal interaction. And as you mentioned, there are lots of photos now about how uh, that outdoor event had a large indoor component, which doesn't help things at all.
1: And people at the outdoor event were doing things not only maskless but hugging kissing each other's cheeks i mean it it does look like if you wanted to do some kind of public health chart showing what not to do this would you see a lot of don'ts there i'm also i don't know how much of this you guys have done and i know there's been some sort of crowdsourcing of this but even kind of working backwards from president trump's treatment protocol Given when the dexamethasone came in, which is kind of usually seven to eight days out, it kind of seems like the the onset might have been uh, right around the the time of the Barrett party. I mean, it kind of makes sense that way. I, and I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the crowdsourcing. Are people sort of coming forward to you and kind of saying, "Well, Will, but wait a minute, because I know this, and I I know that this person was at that event."
0: Yeah, so that's the way that we've gotten the majority of this information. Um, you know as I mentioned, my colleagues Benji and Jesse actually put together this uh, spreadsheet, you know just scrolling through Twitter, reading news articles et etc. and then we set up a little tip line as well and since then it's kind of been flooded with um, tips about various news articles or tweets or geotags from social platforms, et cetera. So I'd say that 85 percent of the information on there is has been sort of crowdsourced. <clears throat>
1: So you get data, but then you have to be able to interpret data to make it useful. Uh, And so, I mean, one of the questions that you probably will be asked or have been asked is based on what you know, should tomorrow night's vice presidential debate take place specifically, given what you know about the contacts that Mike Pence has had, should he be quarantining right now?
0: Look, I mean, if if you are going to follow the CDC guidelines to the letter, the answer is definitely not Um, that that debate should be held at um, you know, on zoom, if anything Um, you know, uh, we've, we've seen reports now of course that they're adding the plexiglass that was used in the South Carolina debate um, as well as maybe a couple of other things. But I I do think that the press secretary's experience here is illustrative. Um, You know, you can test positive uh, for this virus after receiving multiple negative tests. So, and certainly, uh, Vice President Pence was in close contact with multiple people that are now have now tested positive. So, if this wasn't a debate, uh, or if this was a normal work setting, this event would would be have been moved.
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of the plexiglass uh, and stuff like that, uh, I liked what Saskia Popescu, an epidemiologist from Arizona who's been on the show a bunch of times, said. She said it's you know asking us to come up with stuff like that is like asking us to figure out how to drive drunk more safely. I mean, you just shouldn't drive if you're drunk. Don't ask us, you know, what kind of, you know, balloons to put in your car or something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This isn't a, you know, a bigger seatbelt so that you can drive when you're intoxicated. Um, Sesky is wonderful. We actually have worked together a little bit in the COVID tracking project. So uh, I fully endorse whatever she has to say on the subject.
1: So, um I I mean, this will also you've already sort of answered this question, but if the Rose Garden is the originating event uh, and if President Trump is nine days out or something like that, um, and if, uh, you know, Daniel Griffith, uh, Daniel Griffin, who does the uh, from ProHealth, who does a lot of the clinical briefings on this week in virology, he says patients can shed virus 20 days out. This also, this whole question, and I realize you're doing data visualization and I'm asking you to make an epidemiological judgment, but this might affect the October 15th uh, presidential debate, too. I mean, this, it it might not be the case that President Trump is a safe person to be around, even as late as October 15th.
0: Uh, It certainly could, you know, thank you for the, the caveat there. Definitely not an epidemiologist wouldn't want to paint myself as one. Um, But the timelines do make that at at least a little bit hazy, Um, especially since, you know, beyond the president himself, whether or not he's recovered enough to attend that debate. um, There are certainly other people that would have to be involved in setting up the hall, doing the logistics, all of that things. And we've we've seen multiple reports of uh, people who were involved in setting up the debate previously have come down with the coronavirus. You know, thankfully not any of the. the Biden camp or anything like that. But there have been other staffers and service workers, which sort of reinforces the message that, um, you know, there are rules for people who have lesser jobs and then there are rules for people in the administration. And those two sets of rules don't seem to be the same.
1: Are there people and I'm thinking specifically Secret Service, like, I, by the way, what we will do is uh, we, we will tweet out and put up uh, Peter's uh, team's COVID tracker, White House COVID tracker uh, on all social media that we have, or he's Peter J. Walker on, on Twitter. You can find this pretty easily there too. Um, it seems as though one permanently blind alley might be the Secret Service. So there's a lot of Secret Service agents who have a lot of exposure. And of course, we saw two of them in a hermetically sealed SUV with President Trump on Sunday. But my sense is the Secret Service ain't telling nobody nothing.
0: Yeah, that's definitely the sense that we're getting as well. Um, And that applies, you know, certainly part of the reason that we put this together, I'd say probably one of the main reasons is to inform the public about highly uh, important infections with elected officials or other senior leaders, et cetera. Um, While we're interested in making sure that we contact um, and, or excuse me, that we trace and sort of get a handle on infections with the Secret Service and the staff and everything like that. We don't want to name those people if they don't want to be named, you know. We want to make sure that we are keeping that information private if it needs to be. But there's certainly, you know, there's a lot of spread that's probably gone unnoticed to this point. You've seen multiple family members now, so people that were not in attendance at any of these events, but just, you know, had a family member who was come down with the virus. Um, so this isn't—it's not as though it's contained to the people at these events, as as you might expect. It's, if it's a super spreading event it spreads and it can spread quite widely.
1: It's worth m- m- mentioning that you are filling a void, as we said at the beginning, that is of interest to people, authorities in Minnesota, authorities in Washington DC, authorities in New Jersey, where the Bedminster event was held. Uh, all In all of these places, they've got people who were at the originating event, who may have had contact with somebody with COVID. In other words, I mean, these are cases where public officials in these places want to plan responsibly and react uh, to what's happened. And I I get the sense you you are more of a source of this kind of information than anything else they're getting right now.
0: Um, Well, in some cases, that's true. In some cases, not so much. So we do know that the state government of New Jersey has been in touch with people that were at the Bedminster fundraiser um, and has been doing contact tracing there. But but I think your wider point stands. You know, the administration has not only neglected to do so, has frankly declined to do any sort of contact tracing from the White House itself. So at that point you know i guess this sort of crowdsourcing is the best that we can do for the moment
1: so uh, we've been talking to uh, Peter J. Walker. This is a terrific thing that you're doing, and it really is um, pretty fascinating. And, and it's interesting to watch people. I really do recommend Peter's Twitter feed just because other people are kind of weighing in. And, for example, there's somebody giving a really good explanation uh, of uh, of how it's possible, for example, that uh, Kaylee McEnany would have tested uh, negative two or three times and then tested positive. And, and I guess that's got to be kind of the fun of it, too, is just watching... People kind of take up uh, take up the challenge here. So, uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Yeah, real pleasure, no problem. All right, so we're
1: gonna go out here in just a second. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> cat, poor cat, pastor. Cat pastor has been working around the clock to record all of the fundraising pledge breaks and all kinds of stuff <laughs> and she's having a problem with the clock right now, which she never has but it's attributable legitimately to exhaustion. Uh, so I think we're just about out here, but I do want to say some nice people are going to come on. I guess it's Frankie and Katie uh, and talk to you about why you should support this show. Please do it. Do it during our hour. Mention our show in the comments uh, when, you, when you do it and we will be very, very grateful to you. So I hear some music. I think I could probably get out here. Uh, thanks to Cat Pastor, Betsy Kaplan and all of our guests and we'll be back tomorrow'
2: giving myself whatever they ask
0: but without this single truth it is only emptiness that I can ask. a happiness that will not last.